0: Welcome back to episode 8 of the AUENV 233 Dirt on Soils podcast. Today we are starting a two episode arc on soil nutrient cycles in which we will explore the two major and essential biogeochemical cycles, nitrogen and phosphorus. The first episode will be on nitrogen, corresponding to slides 1 to 41. First, let's hear from the red hot chili peppers. For these two episodes, the learning outcomes are to understand the importance of nutrients in the soil ecosystem, to know and understand the seven processes of the nitrogen cycle, and the four processes of the phosphorus cycle. Finally, we should be aware of the links between nutrient dynamics and other aspects of soil health. If you have ever purchased or just seen fertilizer in your local store during the lead up to spring or over the summer, you will notice a series of three numbers on every bag, regardless of its intended application. Those numbers are the key reason for fertilizer and represent the amount of the three primary nutrients, nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. The standard sequence of numbers is always in that order and indicates the ratio of different nutrients contained in the fertilizer with each number expressed as a percentage. Every brand has different mixtures, and you can purchase bags of individual nutrients, e.g. phosphorus 0, 40, 0, depending on your use. You can use the number to figure out the weight of the nutrient contained in the bag by multiplying the bag weight by the percentage represented. Let's start by exploring that first and most important nutrient, nitrogen. So what's the big deal with nitrogen? Actually, for something we don't tend to think about much, if at all, a lot. Nitrogen is often the limiting nutrient for primary productivity in terrestrial ecosystems which means that without nit- enough nitrogen, growth at the base of our food web is limited, meaning there is also a limit placed on higher links on the food chain as well. Given our reliance on agriculture as the basis to feed the world, it makes sense that more money and effort are spent on nitrogen management than any other nutrient. As we will see, soils are an essential part of the nitrogen cycle and key to recycling of nitrogen resources. Of course, with the focus on more productivity, we have turned to more fertilizers, and there are clear impacts of excessive nitrogen on the environment. Nitrogen is an essential building block for proteins, amino acids, and at an even more basic level, DNA and RNA, the literal building blocks of life. Increasing availability of nitrogen for plants means healthier foliage. It stimulates root growth and contributes to higher protein contents of seeds. However, it is a goal of nutrient management to apply the correct amount of nitrogen as there are negative consequences for deficiency and oversupply. If limited in nitrogen, then plants will have higher sugar contents and lower protein contents a big deal for health impacts. However, an oversupply can contribute to excessive growth and a lack of structure, and also the opposite condition of low sugar and vitamin levels. Beyond the plant, excessive nitrogen has its largest impact on aquatic environments via water pollution. Although nitrogen is found in a number of forms, only four are considered plant available. The major ones are nitrate, NO3 ions, and ammonium, NH4 ions. These are absorbed in solution as dissolved ions. It is interesting to note that plant-available nitrogen has an anion and cation form. This means that plant uptake can take place with an exchange of bicarbonate, HCO3-, including increasing pH levels, soil pH levels, or through exchange of hydrogen ions, H+, decreasing soil pH levels. Other forms of nitrogen include NO2 ions, although these are rare, and organic forms of nitrogen in amino groups. Slide 11 shows the nitrogen cycle and deserves special attention, as it is the basis of our discussion for major pathways. Overall, the nitrogen cycle is complex as it features nitrogen in all three phases of matter, and this figure is a bit of a simplification. In the figure, boxes represent various forms and stores of nitrogen, and the arrows are transformations of nitrogen, both losses and gains. The color of the arrows has some meaning, with bright green indicating replenishment of nitrogen, and blue arrows indicating anaerobic processes. As we learned when discussing soil organisms, enzymes in microflora and microfauna drive most of the reactions, and those are represented by the small boxes labeled SO. The largest pool for nitrogen is the atmosphere, which consists of 78% nitrogen. However, it is not directly usable by the biosphere as it is in an extremely stable triple-bonded form, N2. To become available or reactive, it requires this bond to be broken. This happens via two pathways. The fir- both are with lots of energy. The first is through lightning, and the second is nitrogen fixation from microbes. Reactive nitrogen can also be returned to the atmosphere as triple bonded N2 through a process called denitrification, representing bookends on the cycle. A second major pool is the soil, which contains between 0.02 and 0.5% nitrogen by weight. This works out to being between 10 to 20 times the amount in vegetation. 95 to 99% of this soil nitrogen is in organic forms that are not available for uptake without some transformation. Based on this organic form, the amount of nitrogen parallels the amount of soil organic matter, and, is it about, and it is about 5% of that total. In less than an area where large amounts of fertilizer have been applied, then only between 1 to 2% of soil nitrogen is inorganic. As we will see, this occurs because mineral forms of nitrogen are much more soluble in water. Let's start the discussion of the processes underlying the nitrogen cycle with fixation, or how nitrogen moves from the atmosphere into the soil. Next to photosynthesis, this is probably the most important biochemical reaction on Earth. Fixation is performed by soil bacteria, but only a limited number of them. Some specific examples are rhizobium, actinomycetes, and cyanobacteria. The key key aspect to the process is the catalyst enzyme nitrogenase, The chemical reaction shown on slide 14 also highlights the need to consume energy, represented here as six electrons, in order to break that triple bond of N2. Because of this energy requirement, this process is enhanced when it is symbiotic with plants as they can supply energy from photosynthesis. It can also take place freely in the soil without the presence of plants. The most commonly known plants that help with nitrogen fixation are the legume family. In this family, the symbiosis is between rhizobial bacteria and the plant's root system. The formation of root nodules serves as the site of nitrogen fixation. See slide 17 for more details on this nodule formation. Similar to what we noted with fungal hyphae networks, the exchange is that the host plant supplies carbohydrates for energy, and the bacteria act as a source of reactive nitrogen to make essential compounds such as proteins and chlorophyll. Root nodules can also form on non-legumes, such as various woody shrubs and trees like alder and lilac. The importance of these plants is their ability to make more nitrogen available for other plants through plant materials, leaf litter, crop residues, etc. In an agricultural context, one can use a crop rotation to increase organic nitrogen in the soil by planting legumes in one season, or even specific crops selected for these properties. See the tillage radish example in our slides then leaving crop residue on the fields, and planting a crop that requires nitrogen in the following season. It is obviously helpful if both of these crops have some market, and in eastern Ontario, it was a combination of soybean and corn as a cropping system. The same preparation of soils can happen in natural environments, with nitrogen-fixing plants becoming some of the first to colonize recently disturbed land and starting successional trajectories. Nitrogen availability was a limitation on agricultural productivity, And so there was a lot of effort put into designing artificial means of adding nitrogen to increase growth yields. The Haber-Bosch process was developed in the early 1900s as an artificial means of creating plant-available nitrogen. To give an idea of its importance, it was awarded two different Nobel Prizes, one for the discovery of the process and one for its industrialization, primarily happening after World War II. The chemical process is very similar to fixation and requires very high temperatures and extreme pressures. Because of this, about 1-2% to 2% of global energy supplies are required for the creation of chemical nitrogen fertilizers. It's a big business, and also very carbon intensive. The discovery of an artificial source of nitrogen contributed to a quadrupling of agricultural productivity, and as of right now, more than half of the earth is fed by food that involves additions of synthetic fertilizer. The figure on slide 18 shows changes in the relative amounts of natural nitrogen fixation and anthropogenic sources either through artificial processes or cropland rotation. We can see that the anthropogenic inputs now exceed the natural processes and artificial fertilizers fix as much nitrogen as natural processes. Let's look into the next big process, mineralization and immobilization. These are opposite processes that work to either break down large organic molecules into inorganic and plant available nitrogen, or the opposite. Mineralization begins with decomposition into simple amino compounds or amine groups. These are hydrolyzed and nitrogen is released as ammonium ions, which can then be oxidized into nitrites and then nitrates. Immobilization, which can be biotic or abiotic, moves in the opposite direction, locking nitrogen into large organic molecules. It is important to recognize that both are happening simultaneously and that the net effect is either an increase or decrease in nitrogen availability. The major factor determining this is the carbon to nitrogen ratio in the soil. When the carbon to nitrogen ratio is low, usually less than 25 to 1, mineralization dominates to create inorganic forms of nitrogen. When the carbon to nitrogen ratio increases to more than 25 to 1, then immobilization is the dominant process and more inorganic nitrogen ions would be removed from the soil solution. The ratio of carbon to nitrogen can change with addition or subtraction of either component However, most immobilization is triggered when microorganisms working to decompose organic residues require more nitrogen than is available from those residues. This means they would scavenge nitrogen from the soil. This usually happens in the first generations of microorganisms, linking back to our discussion of the priming effect and a similar nitrate depression period during that time. Now that we know more about the movement between organic and inorganic forms of nitrogen, what is the fate of these inorganic forms from the first steps of mineralization? One is ammonification, the creation of ammonium ions. There are two major pathways for these ammonium ions. The first is potential volatilization, or the creation of ammonia gas, NH3, which represents a loss of nitrogen from the soil. This reversible reaction is in equilibrium between soil solution ammonium ions and ammonia gas. This reaction reveals two things. One, volatilization is more likely to occur at high pH levels, as the hydroxide ions OH-, will have a higher concentration and push the reaction to the right. Two, if we add water or amendments that produce ammonia gas, the reaction will move to the left, increasing pH. Additionally, volatilization is more likely to happen in soils with low amounts of colloid surfaces, so sandy soils would experience more than clay soils, and in places with higher temperatures, i.e., at the soil surface. This second point is important because it speaks to the importance of incorporating manure or adding water once you've applied those types of fertilizers. The second pathway for ammonium ions is nitrification, an oxidation reaction. This takes place through two specific groups of bacteria that obtain their energy from this reaction, and in two stages. The genus nitrosomonas convert ammonium into nitrite, single nitrogen, and two two oxygen atoms. And the genus nitrobacter convert nitrites into nitrates, one nitrogen with three oxygen atoms. Notably, these reactions take place very quickly following each other, limiting the amount of toxic NO2 in the soil. This entire process converts nitrogen into a more mobile and usable form for plants, which is nitrate, NO3 It should be noticed from these reactions that these are acidifying reactions due to the release of hydrogen ions. The best conditions for this set of reactions is in well-drained soils, they have the aerobic conditions required. Soil moisture around 60% is ideal and when temperatures are warm. As we move into spring with rapid thawing and warming of soils, it's actually a time when a flush of soil nitrate production takes place. Other than plant uptake of nitrate ions, the other pathway is denitrification, which results in losses of nitrogen to the atmosphere. This process also happens via soil organisms, especially faculative anaerobic bacteria and involves the reduction or loss of oxygen in a series of steps converting NO3 eventually to nitrogen gases including nitric oxide, NO, nitrous oxide, N2O, and dinitrogen gas, N2. The general conditions for these reactions are no more than 10% oxygen with lower levels preferred. The amount of various gases depends on oxygen levels, but also the pH and temperature of the soil environment. The thing to remember about these reactions is that they are taking place all of the time in small microsites in the soil. It is not necessarily an entire field all undergoing the process at the same time. For example, slide 29 shows that even small soil aggregates that are well-drained could have areas with denitrification taking place at depths away from the surface. Moisture also plays a role in the amount of different gases produced as NO fluxes are highest in well-drained soils when nitrification is most active. The highest N2O fluxes are at between 70 to 80% water-filled pore spaces. And once we exceed that level, oxygen becomes so limiting that denitrification would continue and produce N2 as the end product. Our interest in understanding the different nitrogen gases being produced is twofold. One is that any period of denitrification represents a loss of nitrogen from the soil and can impact plant health, and the second is is the incomplete reduction resulting in NO or N2O gases has potential severe environmental impacts. These include N2O acting as a greenhouse gas in the upper atmosphere, absorbing more long-wave radiation. They can also contribute to low-level atmospheric ozone formation, which is a major component of smog. N2O also contributes directly to formation of nitric acid and acid rain. Another major fate of nitrogen that impacts the environment and re- could, and results in losses from this important cycle are surface runoff and leaching. Usually this topic coincides with the playing of the masters, likely the most famous golf tournament in the world. The emerald greens and lush fairways of this, and really most every other golf course require lots of nitrogen and other fertilizer additions. And much of it may end up in waterways through nitrate runoff and leaching issues. The plot on slide 33 reveals the nitrate concentrations of water flowing into and out of two different golf courses. Course B shows high levels of nitrate outflow, well above the dotted line, a level which is known to encourage phytoplankton blooms. Course D, however, has only slightly elevated outflows, although they still exceed the dotted line in the spring. Normally, low levels of nitrogen limit aquatic algae growth, but increased human inputs remove that limitation and produce large blooms of algae. These blooms can result in low oxygen or hypoxic dead zones due to decomposition of the algae. One significant example is in the Gulf of Mexico where the Mississippi River drains. The picture on slide 34 reveals the scale of this dead zone, shown in red as an area of extremely high productivity. But it is far from the only case. A very similar issue exists in our backyard in Lake Winnipeg and throughout its watershed, which includes Camrose and the Battle River. Although I spoke about golf courses earlier, the majority of nitrates result from runoff and leaching from agricultural lands. So what are potential solutions? Well, going back to that golf course example, what were the major differences between these two courses to have very different levels of nitrates? It was determined to be the presence of two small ponds in a forested wetland in course D. The presence of these features led to rapid denitrification and removal of nitrate under anaerobic conditions in wetland soils right along the buffer riparian strip. This suggests that there are management approaches one could take to reduce nitrates in leaching groundwater and surface runoff, including constructed wetlands and perhaps most importantly, retaining or re-establishing riparian buffers. However, a major effort needs to be undertaken to improve efficiency of nitrogen application. It is really over-application of nitrogen fertilizers that contributes to loss. That over-application leads to plants not being able to assimilate nitrogen and it will then be lost through leaching, surface runoff, or denitrification and volatilization. There are two ways to approach this. The first is on the addition side, where we should use nitrogen more as a supplement rather than a required application. And the second is on the subtraction side, where we can try to limit losses of nitrogen, such as leaving residues to retain nutrients in the system. Specifically, in an urban context, here I'm thinking about grass clippings on your lawn. There's really no need to apply fertilizers if you leave that source of nitrogen on your lawn. From an agricultural perspective, adjustments can be made to using legume rotations or cover crops, and also avoiding overly optimistic yields that would require large nitrogen applications at the beginning of the season. Improvements are also being developed in terms of slower-release fertilizers to avoid major spikes of input. So that's it for our discussion of nitrogen. Next up, a discussion of the second major nutrient cycle, phosphorus. Until then.